There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Over 300 prophecies delivered through dozens of different men and women spanning across more than a thousand years, all fulfilled in one lifetime by one man. I was reading an article this week about the odds, uh, mathematically speaking, of one person fulfilling that many prophecies. From the journal uh, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner, the former chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, says if you take only eight prophecies, the probability of all eight of those prophecies being fulfilled by one person is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion, right? In other words, one with 17 zeros after it. And then he went on to say that if you took that many silver dollars and laid them on the face of Texas, they would cover all of the state two feet deep. And then if you marked one of those silver dollars and then stirred up all the coins, blindfolded a man and sent him out to pick up that marked silver dollar, the odds that he picks up that one marked coin are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's just the odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. He went on to say that the odds of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 with 157 zeros after it. So you can imagine one person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies. Those odds are so astronomical. It was concluded the only way Jesus could do that is if he actually was who he said he was, the Son of God. With that in mind, consider American University professor Alan Lickman, who has correctly predicted the outcome of the last nine presidential elections. And even though uh, those were predictions, not prophecies, as the professor openly explains the 13 criteria he uses to make those predictions. And even though his predictions are based on the same event every four years using the same parameters for collecting the same data with, of course, a 50-50 chance of getting it right each time, it's still impressive that his formula has worked nine times in a row. So, so impressive, in fact, that the leading party strategists, major, major uh, media outlets, hordes of politicians and political party leaders line up every election cycle to hear what the good professor has to say. And yet most of those same people couldn't care less about what Jesus has to say. And of course, it's not just the politicians, right? It's, it's most of humanity. And, and just to make it more intriguing, the Apostle John explains that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1, which of course is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. In other words, those 300 plus prophecies that were spoken through those men and women of the Old Testament were actually given to them by Jesus, the Word long before he ever came to the earth. So Jesus spoke over 300 prophecies about himself and then came to the earth and fulfilled them, not to mention his prophecy about the destruction of the temple, uh, which we talked about two weeks ago, which was fulfilled in A.D. 70 with astonishing accuracy. That was about 40 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So, so uh, let's just get this straight. A man gathers 
quantifiable data every four years to predict the outcome of the presidential election. And because he gets it right nine times in a row, some of the most powerful and influential people on the planet are clamoring after his every word. In fact, if you read his most recent comments about this next election that's coming up and what he says one of the parties must do if it has any hope of winning, and then you look at what that party is actually doing right now, it looks like their entire strategy is based on this one man's advice. While Jesus makes hundreds of statements over hundreds of years through dozens of people about completely different events and then fulfills every one of them down to the last detail. And yet it's all we can do to convince people to pay any attention at all to what Jesus said, let alone to actually live by it. Honestly, what is wrong with us? Well, the answer is the same thing that was wrong with his followers back then, if we're being honest, we're often far more compelled by this world than we are by his word, which is what happens when we allow what the world says to carry more weight in our lives than what Jesus says, right? The, the truth is, listen, there shouldn't be one single Christian on this planet who's afraid to die. Why? Because Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, there to prepare a place for you? John 14, 1 and 2. Listen, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. 25. But listen, if you're holding on to this world tighter than you're holding on to Jesus, then the prospect of dying will trouble your heart deeply. Okay, the, the reality is there shouldn't be one single Christian on earth worried about money. Why not? Because Jesus said, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Matthew 6, 31 and 32. But look, if you allow this world to define what is enough for you, then you will worry about money all the time. In fact, just think about all of the unknowns, right? All of the uncertainties that, that you face at times in your life. And yet, according to God's word, there shouldn't be one single Christian alive today who is anxious about tomorrow. Even though we have no idea what tomorrow may bring. Why? Because Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Matthew 6, 34. But you see, the truth is, as long as you have more faith in what this world can do to you than in what Jesus has promised for you, then you will often be anxious about tomorrow. Now, just imagine for a moment that you never again had to worry about what might happen to you in the days ahead or about money or material things or even about dying. Just imagine if you never had to worry again about just those three big life issues. How would you live your life differently than you're living it right now? Right? If, if, if dying was no longer a concern, what risks would you take for Jesus that you're not willing to take now? 
If you never again had to worry about money, about financial security or protecting your material assets, how would you use your money and goods to do what Jesus called you to do with your life? And if you never had to give a second thought to the consequences that tomorrow may bring based on your circumstances today, how bold would you be in the decisions that you're making in your life right now? What choices could you make that would change your life and the lives of others for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Right? Because if the things that give us pause, if those things were no longer concerns, if we never had to worry again about all of the unknowns in our lives, how differently would you be living your life today? And look, you really should take the time to meditate on these questions and then deeply consider the answers because the truth is, if your life is actually in Christ, then without exception, you do not have to worry about any of the great unknowns in your life ever again. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus said. As we're going to see in our story today as we continue working our way through the gospel according to Mark. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Mark chapter 13 where uh, we're going to cover the final three points. Points four, five, and six of this two-part sermon. And if you missed the first three points in the first half of the chapter uh, and yet you're trying to keep an outline, you can access all of that online our mobile app and, and YouTube channel and, and website, those sorts of things. My, my son, as most of you know, spoke last Sunday. So the first half of this sermon was actually two weeks ago, okay? So let's jump back into Mark chapter 13. We're going to begin by reading uh, verses 24 through 27 as Jesus now continues to teach his disciples on the Mount of Olives in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. So Mark 13, 24 through 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Jesus has been teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the Temple Mount, and up until the end of the first half of this chapter where we stopped last time, he's been describing this period of great tribulation before his return and the signs of the end of the age that lead up to it. And so here, he explains what follows that period of tribulation. He says, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And, and uh, by the way, this was not new information to the people he was talking to. Jesus is actually just quoting Old Testament scriptures that all observant Jews would have been familiar with at the time. Okay, Isaiah 13, 10, uh, chapter 34, verse 4, Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, Joel 2, 10, Joel 3, 4 uh, and 15, Joel 4, 15, Ezra 5, 1 and 2, there are numerous apocryphal writings, those ancient writings between the Old and New Testaments. I was looking this week at the Assumptions of Moses, chapter 10, verse 5, uh, 1 Enoch, chapter 80, verse 2, and then we also find it later 
in Jewish and Greek apocalyptic writings after Jesus' death and resurrection, such as the late first century second apocalypse of Baruch and the sixth or seventh century Sibylline oracles, chapter three, as well, of course, as the, uh, the biblical book of Revelation in chapters six and eight. Now, the point being, this whole idea of a complete cosmic collapse where darkness will chaos uh, and chaos will envelop the earth and the order of creation at the end of human history on the earth as we know it, just as it did, by the way, before human history on the earth as we know it in Genesis 1-2, the idea that all of this would occur sometime between a great tribulation and the second coming of the Messiah was a well-documented concept for the Jewish people as Jesus is simply quoting from the Old Testament here, something they all would have been familiar with, and yet it is the next part of his teaching, which is also uh, a quote from the Old Testament that brings all of this otherwise terrifying talk of tribulation and end times to its gloriously hopeful conclusion where Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And remember that the they part, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's referencing Daniel 7:13, which is the culmination of all of this talk about tribulation, which we'll come back to in a moment. But notice first that Jesus doesn't actually say how much time there is in between each of these events. In fact, uh, what he does say later in this chapter, which we'll get to, is that no one knows how much time there is between these events, not even the angels uh, or even himself. He says just the Father, which Jesus was careful to point out to them. Why? So that people wouldn't do exactly what so many of us do every day. When we take our focus off of Jesus and is calling for us to exhaust our lives on this earth making disciples, why? Because we're too worried and consequently too preoccupied with the end of days or more specifically for most of us, the end of our days on this earth. And so as a result, so many of us spend the bulk of our time on this earth expending the bulk of our energy and resources trying to insulate ourselves from the inevitable tribulations that Jesus says every single one of us is going to face in our lifetimes. Because look, whether you leave this earth before, uh, during, or after the final tribulation, Jesus promises us that every one of us will still face times of tribulation. And so the point of this entire uh, discourse was not in any way, shape, or form for the purpose of trying to help us predict when he would return, contrary to the popular belief of so many who have tried. No, the, the entire point of this discourse was to teach us not to try and predict when he's coming back, but instead to understand that no matter when he comes back, Tribulation is a reality that every single one of us is going to face in our lifetimes, which is precisely why the Apostle Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, when His glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Well, when is his glory to be revealed? At the second coming. This, this is a direct reference by Peter to the very same subject Jesus is talking about in Mark. And yet Peter was writing this to first century Christians because he knew that no matter when that second coming actually happened, we're all going to experience 
some form of tribulation in our lives. And so he says we should not only accept that, actually we should rejoice in it because of Jesus' very next statement in Mark. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right after the worst tribulation this world has ever known. In other words, no matter what hardships, no matter what trials, no matter what tribulation you may face in your life, even if it's that final tribulation, as terrible as that is going to be, no matter what end you meet when your time on this earth is over, if you are a Christian, you do not have to fear death because Jesus said he's taking you home. Remember what he said in John 14, 1 and 2, let not your hearts be troubled, don't be worried. Believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? You understand, this world is not your home. Your home is with Jesus where he's preparing a place for you to go and live with him. The author of Hebrews said here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13, 14. You see, your life on this earth is an assignment. It's a work trip. You've been sent out to do a job, to complete a project. And once you've finished what you were sent here to do, you get to go home. And like any job, there'll be good days and there'll be bad days. There'll be victories and defeats along the way. Listen, to be sure, there will be beautiful encounters and moments to cherish, but there will also be obstacles to overcome, burdens to bear, and tribulations to endure. And yet, at the end of it all, when your work here is finally finished, you get to go home. That's what Jesus said. And yet, most of us live like we're afraid to go home. So we fail to do the job we've been sent here to do to the best of our ability because completing the job means going home and we don't long for home. So instead, we, we, instead of focusing on the job that he created us for and sent us here to do, we cling to a city that's not our home until we end up spending the bulk of our time and energy and resources that we've been given specifically to do this job just trying to stay here as long as we can in this city that is not our home instead of doing the job we were sent here to do. It's why the Apostle Paul said to me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Philippians 1.21, because he understood that when you see this life for what it is, and also understand that at the end of it, you get to be with Jesus. It's a win-win situation that God has put you in. As long as you're here, you get to do the job he created you to do, and yet you also know at whatever moment he says your job here is done, then you get to be with him at home where you belong which means all of the trials and tribulations, you understand they're just a part of the job. They're a part of the challenge of completing this project you've been given. In fact, they're opportunities for you to show him and others what you can do with what he's given you. And so can you, can you begin to see just how important it is, just how critical it is that you see this life for what it really is? Because listen, as long as, you, uh, as long as you think this is the place you are ultimately destined for, 
You understand, as long as you see this life as your preferred destination, then you're going to worry about every single thing that threatens your ability to stay here, which is a paralyzing way to live your life and an impossible way to complete the job that he's assigned you to do. Right? What, what good is it possibly to live to be 100 years old and then enter into eternity, eternity, not having done the job you were sent here to do. It's exactly what Jesus meant when he asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Mark 8, 36 and 37. Listen, if you are living in fear of dying, then you've forgotten where your home is. More importantly, if you're living in fear of dying, I can tell you with certainty, you are not doing the job you were created for and sent here to do because fear ultimately influences every decision you make. And you understand, I'm not talking about, you know, being reckless for the sake of being reckless. No, I'm talking about living your life so sold out for Jesus Christ that even answering his call on your life, even if it means risking your own health and safety and comfort and security while you're here on this earth, then you're more than willing to take that risk if that's what is needed for you to do the job he sent you here to do. The truth is I can't hardly fathom what the church in America would be able to actually accomplish if we were more concerned about other people's eternity than we are about our own mortality, right? Our own comfort, our own security and safety. We worry so much about our own lives here on this earth that most of us dedicate the vast majority of what God has given us to do a specific job. We devote that to instead preserving our own personal health and safety and comfort during our brief stay in this city that is not even our home to begin with. So look, if, if the majority of your daily decisions revolve around self-preservation, it may be time to take a long, hard look at whether or not you're actually doing the job he sent you here to do, because I can promise you, when you do enter into eternity and look back at this speck of time that you had on this earth in light of all of eternity, you won't wish you'd saved more money or bought more stuff or kept more for yourself or, listen, been more cautious. No. No, you will wish you had given more. You will wish you had risked more. And you will wish you had exhausted more of your life doing the job that he sent you here to do. For the last decade or so, I've made it a point to take as many opportunities as I can with as many older, retired, usually sort of been there, done that, uh, everything ministers as I possibly can because there's such a deep well of wisdom and experience that really cannot be accessed any other way. And one question that I always make it a point to ask them is what is your greatest regret? There's so much insight from, from those answers that I get from just that one question. But I'm telling you the one answer that I hear over and over and over and over again is this. I wish I had risked more. I wish I'd taken more risks with what God had given me. And, and yet, why do you think it is they didn't risk more? Fear. Let's keep reading, verses 28 through 31. 
from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Palestine, most of the trees are evergreens, whereas the fig tree loses its leaves in the winter and then they come back in the late spring just before summer. And so Jesus says, just like you know that summer is almost here when you see the new leaves on the fig tree, so is the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory near when all these signs that I'm describing to you take place. And we know that this uh, is a literal physical coming of the Christ where he gathers his people unto himself. In other words, Jesus isn't just using allegory uh, or symbolism here because first of all, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus talking about coming back in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. In Mark 8, 38, Luke 9, 26, Matthew 25, 31 as well here, as well as here, of course, in uh, Mark 13. And also, of course, in the detailed descriptions that we have in Revelation where Jesus is clearly depicted as returning to the earth to physically establish the new heavens and the new earth along with his people, right? It's the ancient Greek word parousia. It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to the coming of Christ, which was also clearly understood by those first century apostles to be a literal physical return of Jesus as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul compares the coming of Christ, the second coming, and the gathering of his people to the earlier resurrection of Jesus, which we know was a literal physical event. The reason that is important is because of his next statement in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is a uh, very controversial passage of scripture because obviously Jesus has yet to return and yet that first century generation is long gone. And so to try and reconcile that statement, a lot of people say that it must have been allegory uh, or symbolism, that the, the generation was maybe referring to all of the Christians in the New Testament age. Others say that Jesus was referring back in this one part of his teaching to the coming destruction of the temple. And I certainly understand uh, those other arguments, but I've also found when studying a difficult passage of Scripture, the simplest explanation usually makes the most sense. So with that in mind, since Jesus wasn't using allegory when talking about his second coming anywhere else, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would throw in this one allegorical statement in the middle of an otherwise literal description of coming events. And since the entire discussion is about his second coming, it also doesn't make a lot of sense that he would throw in a one-off comment referring back uh, to the temple in the middle of all this talk about his re return. That would be rather random. So, so what's the simplest explanation? Well, we know that Jesus was clearly talking about future events. Pretty much everybody agrees on that, which means, of course, that everything he's describing are things that are going to happen in the future. Remember, he was talking about they will see him coming in the clouds. He didn't say you will see me coming in the clouds. So everything he's talking about are future events, things happening in the future, including this generation that he's describing that is going to experience all of those things. In other words, this generation I'm talking to you about in the future will not pass away until all of these events take place. You see that it's by far the simplest explanation of this 
passage, and I think it makes the most sense, is everything else seems to be uh, an unnecessarily complicated, rather convoluted way of explaining it. But, but look, e either way, Jesus continues, as we'll see later in verse 32, he says, since no one knows, right, not even me, exactly when this will occur, all I can tell you is that it's going to happen within one generation of time, whenever that time is. And since we don't know when that is, you need to be steadfast in living your life according to my teachings. Because listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they're never going to pass away. In other words, Jesus said, trust in his word, not in this world. Because every day that this earth continues to exist in its current state is one day closer to his return. And listen, if you trust in this world more than you do in the word of God, I'm telling you, your anxiety will increase as these signs that Jesus is describing increase. So, uh, great. What's the answer? Well, the world's answer for anxiety and insecurity is money. Right? If you invest in the right companies, if you purchase the best insurance, if you can afford the best doctors and live in the best neighborhoods and put your kids in the best schools and buy the best cars and on and on and on and on, your life will be more secure. It will be safer, more comfortable, which means anxiety goes down and security goes up. And it's all rooted in having enough money. That is this world's answer to everything. In the Bible, it's the ancient Greek word mammonos or mammon, which many people in Jesus' day trusted in as the foundation for their life and, and their philosophy of how to live it, just as so many people do today. And Jesus knew that as these signs increased in the world, so would people's trust in the world, including our trust in mammon, in money, to provide the security and comfort that we all naturally yearned for, which is one of the reasons why earlier in this chapter, when his disciples were commenting on the beauty and richness and magnificence of the temple with all of its gold and finely carved stones and marble, Jesus said, listen, every bit of that, as impressive as it may be, it's all going to be reduced to rubble. It's all going away. It's also what he's saying here. All of this, all of this stuff, everything this world has to offer you, all of your stuff that you trust in, it's all going to pass away. The only thing you can count on, in fact, that is not going to pass away is my words. And so you have to choose what you're going to trust in. Mammon or me. That's why he said no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon, Matthew 6, 24. Because Jesus knew that at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to for most of us. We either trust in him, or we trust in money. But just to be clear, it cannot be both. Your security is either rooted in Christ, or it is rooted in money. Notice Jesus didn't say no one can serve ten masters, or four masters, or three masters. He didn't mention all the other things in this world that we cling to. No, he says no one can serve two masters, because when it comes to our security, Jesus knew that it always comes down to one of only two things, God or money, every time. And I, I understand, uh, by the way, that this is where uh, you get all up in people's business. 
when you start telling them what they should do with their hard-earned money. I understand, but listen, I'm not telling you what you should do with your money. I'm telling you what Jesus said you should do with your money. So if you're going to get mad, get mad at him, not me. So just be honest with yourself about this idea of where your security actually lies. And ask yourself, when I think about what makes me secure today, do I think about what's in the bank? Do I think about what I own? Do I think about where I live? My retirement plan, my investments, my insurance policies, my job? Or do I think about Jesus and the promises in his word about me and my future? Because he said, trust in me and my words, not in this world. And I'm telling you, when you actually begin to do that, when your security rests solely in Jesus Christ and in his word, I'm not saying you won't ever have any money, but I guarantee you, you'll be giving a lot more of it away because you will see it for what it truly is, a resource that God has given you to help you do a specific job that he created you for and sent you to this earth to accomplish, not as a source of personal security. Okay, listen, I've never been a millionaire. But I made a lot of money at one point in my life. I owned three homes, right? All the material things that I wanted, uh, that I thought would make me secure, and I worried about money and business and possessions constantly. There was so much anxiety that it was actually at one point affecting my physical health. I was miserable until I finally decided to put all of my trust in Christ instead of in this world. And as a result, we sold or gave it all away. And then we began using whatever came in from that point in to do the job that he sent us here to do. And without a doubt, I have far less than I used to, less income, less possessions, less material wealth, and yet I've never felt more secure in my life because I'm trusting in Jesus and in his word instead of in this world. And look, to the world, that is foolishness. We cashed in what retirement we had. We sold houses and what belongings we didn't give away and poured all of that money into starting this church because those were the resources we were given, not to make ourselves secure, but to do the job that we were given. I've had plenty of people tell me along the way that really wasn't very smart. Why? Because I'm trusting in Jesus instead of money. I think it's one of the smartest things I've ever done. It's not the easiest, not by a long shot, and yet I've never been happier. I've never been more fulfilled or more secure in my life because my hope is no longer in this world. And listen, I... I'm telling you all that because I simply want that for every one of you because I love you. And I know how much better life is when you shift all of your hope and trust and security from mammon to Christ. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what that looks like for you because although he calls us all to the same mission, he does it in different ways. But I do know this. If you're honest with yourself and you find that your security is rooted in money and material wealth more than it is in Christ, then you will never be able to do the job that he has sent you here to do because no one can serve two masters. So what's it going to be? Because you have to choose one or the other. It 
cannot be both because as Jesus said, heaven and earth, all of this, it's going to pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 32 to the end of the chapter. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says, look, I've told you plainly what is going to happen, but not when it's going to happen because I don't know when it's going to happen and neither do the angels. And by the way, neither do you. So you understand, you you. You cannot afford to be unengaged when it comes to the work I've sent you here to do because the hour is growing late and I'll be back soon. And when I come, it will be too late then for you to go about my business. It will be too late then for you to answer my calling on your life. It will be too late then for you to tell people about me. It will be too late then for you to do what I've sent you here to do. So do the work now. Today, while you still have time, stop sleeping. Stop thinking you'll get to it later when the conditions are better or when your circumstances improve or when you feel more prepared or when your life is in a better place. No, now is the time. And today is the day for you to do the job I sent you here to do. It's a wake-up call from Jesus to his people because he knows our tendency to put off today what we think we can get to tomorrow. But you understand, we're not promised tomorrow. So Jesus said, stay awake. When I was a teenager, it was just me and two of my teenage brothers left living at home with mom and dad. My parents decided to go to Europe for three weeks, leaving us to care for hearth and home while they were away. Not sure how much wisdom there was in that decision, But for whatever reason, they felt that we didn't need any outside supervision at that point in our young lives. And so for three weeks, we lived like undomesticated animals. I'll spare you the details, but we lived as any teenage boys would, left to their own devices for a better part of a month. So uh, here's the thing, though. We knew what day our parents were coming home. So the night before they arrived, we got busy. We put everything back into order and cleaned that house from stem to stern. And when they got home the next day, my dad was so impressed and I'm sure a bit surprised that we didn't not only burn the house down, but that it was actually in excellent condition, that he he actually gave each of us some money as a reward for taking such good care of things. I'm actually not sure if I've ever told this story in public before, so if I go missing after today... You may want to check with my parents, but listen, that's sort of how we want to live our lives until Jesus returns. We want to do what we want to do. We want to have it our way. So we live these these self-centered, self-focused, self-serving lives, thinking we have plenty of time before he returns or calls us home. And he knows that about us. 
So he said, listen to me. You have to stay awake. Because the hour is late. The, the clock on your life and on this earth, it's running. And I've sent you here to do a job, not later. Not tomorrow, not when you feel more prepared or more qualified. No, it's today. It's right here. It's right now. You're here to do a job. It's what you were created and sent here for. And since not one of us knows what tomorrow brings, we'd better get on with it today. But look, if what this world says carries more weight in your life than what Jesus says, Please understand, you can believe in Jesus all day long and give more weight to the world than you do to his word. Actually, I think that perfectly describes the life of so many Christians today, certainly in the American church, the result of which is believers who consistently make decisions that are at least to some extent driven by fear and worry and anxiety. A nagging fear about having to leave this world when your time here is through, worrying about money and material things and anxiety about what tomorrow may bring. And the problem with living like that is the fact that it paralyzes you. It keeps you from doing the job he sent you here to do because you're so consumed by self-preservation. What if it didn't have to be that way? What if you never again had to worry about your life or about money or possessions or about the unknowns of tomorrow? I mean, just imagine what you could accomplish for Christ if every one of those weights of this world were completely removed from your life. Listen, they can be. In fact, Jesus wants to take those weights from you so that you don't have to carry them anymore, so that you can live your life unfettered by fear and worry and anxiety. But why? For what purpose? So that you can do the job you were created for and sent here to do. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus said. Let's pray.